Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuel Ettini, and this is the Sustainability Journey. Welcome to another episode. And today we are going to introduce a change maker, somebody that has so many titles, I don't know even when to start. Is uh, the head of the Department of Geography at the University of Delaware. He is also the lead of Critical Minerals at the UN University. And he has many work and many titles. We will discuss his book and his work, especially in the mineral area. So I'm really pleased to welcome here Professor Salim Ali. Thank you so much, Professor, for being here today. Thank you, Samuel. It's a pleasure. We are really eager to discuss and see why minerals are so important and play a pivotal role in our transition. But our question it is, who is Ali? And what is your sustainability journey? I'm the head of Department of Geography. And geography, by its very nature, is a big tent field. It brings in natural scientists, social scientists. And my own journey started in the natural sciences. My uh, training first was in chemistry. And I loved working with the elements of the earth. Even as a child growing up in Pakistan, I had a small kind of improvised lab in our house. And then um, I went to college in the US and my major was chemistry but I was also in terms of my personality very much an outgoing person so I didn't see my career just being in a lab so I double majored at the time in environmental studies as well and then when time came for graduate study I decided that I was going to move more towards the environmental social sciences and so I ended up then doing my higher studies in environmental planning. My PhD is in environmental planning, which is essentially applied geography. And then um, I worked in industry for a while. I had a chance to get experience both in the private and public sectors. But I always valued the independence of academia, the, the amount of time that we have to be creative, to to do the things we want to do in life. Uh, it's a huge privilege to be in academia that way. And so I ended up then eventually going into academic positions and traveled to 164 countries. I've lived in Australia, US, Pakistan, uh, UK, and it's uh, just wonderful that I've had a chance to experience the planet, not just study about it. So that's been my journey. Wow. And then it's a big journey. And you know, you mentioned this. Uh, I wish I, I I had your experience. 164 is almost the whole planet. <laughs> so, and really what struck me when uh, we, we, we saw and first discussed it was really your research on minerals. Minerals plays an increasing pivotal role in the transition for the sustainable future, as we say. But usually your research is really focused on the environmental conflict on minerals and the potential, what you say, ecological factors to foster peace. Can you explain a bit between the, you know, the jargon, what is involved and what is also why is important? The, the minerals that we use in our daily lives, eventually they go back to the elements of the earth. You know, and my roots in chemistry have been really helpful in terms of working in, in minerals uh, research. And they are the building blocks fundamentally of modern civilization. That's why we have defined 
human development in terms of minerals. We start off with the Stone Age, we go into, you know, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the Silicon Age now. So minerals are fundamental, they are foundational, but they're often underappreciated because the consumer is very distant from the source of the mineral. So when we are using a cell phone or we're using a computer, there's nothing on the label which says this contains these minerals. You know, when you buy a box of cereal or you buy a chocolate bar, it gives you the ingredients. But that's not true of minerals. You know, sometimes it might say vitamins and you have, you know, iron and zinc listed. But for functional purposes, consumers are removed from the minerals that our daily lives are made of. So that's been part of my quest and my mission is to get people to feel the importance of minerals in in that more systems-oriented way. You focused on one uh, particular uh, item. You know, you just published uh, your book, Soil to Foil, no? The Aluminium and the Quest for Industrial Sustainability. So you are really exploring in this book the significance of, of aluminium and, and why so important is for sustainability. So can you explain us why? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, this book was actually solicited by a publisher, a pu- publisher, Columbia University Press. They approached me and they said, you know, you've written about uh, minerals more broadly. I, I had written a book called Treasures of the Earth some years ago, which was about our relationship to minerals more broadly. But Columbia University Press said, why don't you do a deep dive on one element and use an element which could be a much broader parable for how we engage with industrial society uh, more generally. And um, so I thought about which element should I choose. You know, there have been books written on uranium. There have been books written on uh, carbon. There's a wonderful book called Symphony in Sea by Robert Hazen. Sorry, he was a mineralogist. So those books were an inspiration for me. But I wanted to choose one which was neglected, but very important. And so aluminium is the metal which we use the most now in the greatest number of products. But it has a very fascinating story in terms of how we developed the the extraction process to separate uh, aluminium from its most common mineral, which is bauxite. And there was a paradox around aluminium, which I found fascinating. And the paradox was that it's the most abundant metal in the Earth's crust. And yet, we didn't find out a way to extract it until the late 19th century. And so, even though it was so abundant, it was not available for human use. So in the 19th century, it was a very considered a precious metal because it was so difficult to extract. And then finally, there was this amazing revolution which started with the discovery of a process to extract aluminium that happened simultaneously in the U.S. and France. In the U.S., it was an inventor named Charles Hall who was an undergraduate chemistry student at a small college in Ohio called Oberlin College. And as an undergraduate, this was also really amazing for me, and I hope for my students would be inspirational, that he was so passionate about this quest for finding a way to harness aluminium that as an 18, 19-year-old, he worked with his chemistry professor to then develop this technique. And he invented basically this technique, which uses a certain additional mineral called cryolite to extract the 
aluminium metal in an economically efficient way. And that is what led to the massive commercialization of aluminium into all the products that we see now. That whole story is fascinating. And Charles Hall then, you know, he became the founder of Alcoa, the first major multinational uh, aluminium company, and uh, which is still around now. And so, you know, the, it's just a phenomenal story of when this happened and the multiple uses that aluminium is put to, from making aircraft to soda cans to foil uh, to even your Tetra Pak, you know, paper-lined uh, vessels, they have aluminium in them. That's what makes Tetra Pak work. And that's what helps to provide milk in, without refrigeration to so much of the developing world. And aluminium has played such a fundamental role in so many of these things. And then there's also a biological story of aluminium, which is fascinating that from an evolutionary perspective, humans, well, no organism really developed a metabolism for aluminium. You know, why did that happen, even though it was so abundant in the Earth's crust? But like other, you know, minerals like iron and zinc, we have organisms which metabolize them. In fact, we need them. But for some reason, aluminium was never metabolized and there was no evolutionary process which led to aluminium being functional in biological systems. So that's another aspect which was fascinating. So the book, hopefully, you know, it it's like a general science book which can appeal to a very broad audience, but using aluminium to tell that story of how we relate to the elements. And you also put it, you know, the soil to foil, and it's also the quest for industrial sustainability. So why do you think aluminium can play a role in our in the quest for the sustainability of industry? Yeah, you know, I think in terms of the, the overall quest for sustainability with aluminium, that's really fascinating is that it's got properties which make it very suitable for a circular economy. It's highly recyclable. From an economic point of view, extracting it from a primary ore requires a lot of energy and, and hence requires a lot of cost. So there are economic incentives to have a circular economy around aluminium. And then it's also highly abundant overall in terms of its physical availability. So you know, in terms of products, if we were to make a multiple range of products, if we have a good stock of aluminium and then we develop a circular economy around it, it has much greater potential for moving industrial society towards a more sustainable trajectory for resource usage. I'm really interested also, you see also in the books, so if you can share any story of case study you know, from community that uh, impacted by aluminium production and that you can share that you have mentioned also in the book, because you see with minerals, one of the biggest impact that we see also for others now that we have discussed, for example, the cobalt or lithium or other, it's really now the impact they have on community and say, so how, how also that one, that part can be, can be solved if you have case studies on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, for example, uh, batteries are something that now are going to be very important for the green transition. And if we can find a mechanism to develop batteries which can use aluminium rather than a lot of other kinds of metals that are far less available, more difficult to recycle, 
you know, that could be transformative. And there is a lot of research going on around aluminium-related batteries. And I talk about some of these frontier uses of aluminium. I think aluminium's versatility as a metal, it shows us also what innovation should be considered in terms of different kinds of elements. Now, there will be limits to that because there are physical realities of certain uh, elements which make them more suitable for certain uses. So, for example, lithium itself is very powerful as a metal for batteries because it's the lightest metal on the periodic table. And it has certain key properties which you can't replicate with other metals. So I also use the book to give people a kind of a, a basic course in chemistry around, you know, what are the opportunities and limitations of using different elements. And so aluminium comes through as a very useful example to compare other kinds of elements. Can you share maybe some stories from the book that you you really maybe want to put up uh, for our listeners? A lot of people don't know where aluminium originally was mined from bauxite ore and the story of how. During World War II, there was a lot of demand for aluminium because of the need for aircraft. Right, both World War One and Two. By even during World War One, there was enough aluminium availability that was needed for aircraft, but especially for World War Two. So one of the stories I tell is of the connection between the mining of bauxite in the Caribbean, which was a major source of bauxite. You know, one of the reasons the British wanted to stay in Jamaica for so long, was Jamaica was one of the largest sources of aluminium ore. But in order to process the aluminium, you also needed the cryolite, which was this mineral that was used in the process to extract the metal. And in the early days of uh, the, the bauxite industry, the only source of cryolite was one mine in Greenland. It was the only source of cryolite. And during World War II, that mine became such an important strategic location that the U.S. Army built a whole base in Greenland to protect that mine. And so, you know, I tell the story of that mine, Eviktut, that in this very remote and desolate, difficult area, we were extracting a mineral which would be used to help in the extraction of a metal that would be used for aircraft manufacturing. And so the connections between these different supply chains, I tell the story of those connections and how different global powers then went to great lengths to establish control in these areas of the world. And now the largest producer of bauxite is Guinea. Well, it's the largest reserve of bauxite. The production is in Australia is very high. But, you know, Guinea is a country which has a lot of poverty. I visited Guinea also, and I have a section in the book. I tell the story of how, you know, bauxite in Guinea is currently a source of, you know, geopolitical struggle as well. So a lot of this book is, you know, it tells these stories of the supply chain of the mineral and the complexities of the the ways in which we harness it, the concerns about the health impacts which come from the extraction sometimes, what's the science behind those. I tell the story of people who have become somewhat obsessed with the negative health effects of aluminium and, you know, certain products. 
and there's a whole industry of products which are like you know antiperspirants have small amounts of aluminum uh, salts in them and there's this whole you know kind of alternative medicine area that's developed about concerns about aluminum's health effects so i tell the story of one professor who has spent his entire career thinking about you know how do we prove that aluminum has problems with health and the counter narratives and you know so i try to look at it from a very holistic perspective i want to go a bit broader because uh, your roles also as the critical mineral lead and your work it really points you in a, in a perspective where you can see also the evolution towards the circular economy and how do you envision you know product design to go more towards circular economy concerning you know especially the utilization of minerals which is your specialization you know my work professionally with the the united nations i serve on the international resource panel for the un which is a a panel that advises un member states on resource security issues and we've worked on mineral governance reform in countries currently we do not have any international treaty to govern mineral flows and so when we talk about concerns around developing technologies for decarbonization for the green transition there is no global assurance of where those minerals will come from so there's always this concern that one country might reduce the supply of a certain metal which might be needed for wind turbines or for solar panels and so on and so there has been this push to try and have mineral security domestically among the great powers and currently that is playing out quite a bit in the case of the us and china and russia a lot of my work is trying to also bring science diplomacy through the united nations and through multilateral mechanisms to see that we can have a more efficient outcome that is both environmentally and economically more efficient through better international mineral governance because if every country tries to say we are going to mine our own minerals you may not end up with the most efficient outcome environmentally too because you know minerals are a geological accident you know they happen where the geology is where the volcanoes erupted or where an asteroid fell or wherever that it's not something you can just be a factory and put a factory somewhere where you want it you know my concern is that we need to have this reform mechanism through the un where we have much more assurance around especially those critical minerals which we need for the green transition because that's where the bottleneck could happen if we do not have enough neodymium to make magnets and wind turbines which are most efficient then we have a problem if we're going to have large scale wind farms or if we do not have enough indium or cadmium and tellurium for solar panels we have a problem you know so that's kind of also what a lot of my work with the un system is geared towards what is your perspective if we can ask you what do you foresee maybe in the next 5 or 10 years do you see a more sustainable and ethical responsible resource utilization as shift toward also circularity or do you think that this geopolitical tension will arise so eventually we want to move towards circularity but we first need to have some mineral stocks 
uh, especially of these exotic metals, before we can have a circular economy. And we have done research on that. You know, I published a nature paper some years ago with colleagues where we did an analysis of even just a metal like copper, which is widely available and there is recycling stock, but the demand for copper is going to rise so much that we will not be able to meet that demand just by recycling alone. Because recycling gives us a kind of a challenge around sustainability of the how durable a product is going to be, right? If you make a product very durable, in some ways that's good from a sustainability perspective because it's got a longer life and you don't have to manufacture it again. But if it's too durable, you can't recycle it. So then if you're going to increase demand for the same product, that means you'll end up mining it if it's too durable. So it's a kind of, you have to find a sweet spot between a product that's very durable, but you are able to take out certain components for recycling as needed for the new products. So there are challenges around a circular economy which result from that. Ultimately, we want to reduce consumption as much as possible. So we want to get people to consume less. They shouldn't have to need new gadgets all the time. You know, there's a problem with what economists call planned obsolescence, where there's an economic incentive for companies to make new products because they want to have constant throughput and livelihoods and jobs. But that, from a sustainability perspective, is a problem. So you want to ultimately want to reduce the amount of consumption. But for the developing world, that's not going to happen because they have so little consumption anyhow, and they're going to rise in consumption. So we do have to plan for some greater consumption in the developing world. I mean, we still have 800 million people in the world who have no access to electricity. You know, you, you live in Africa, you know how difficult that is. So obviously, now those people deserve development, and there will be more metals and minerals needed for their development. A country like Japan probably can move to a circular economy much faster because they are already developed and the infrastructure is all there, more or less. But we have to be realistic. I think there is a certain utopianism also among our friends in the environmentalist community who feel that there's just going to be a sudden plateauing and people are going to hunker down and consume less. We can try, we can educate, we can try to reduce as much, but there will still be a rise in demand in many cases. So a circular economy should definitely be our ultimate goal, but it will require us to first build mineral stocks, will require us to figure out a way around this durability dilemma of how durable a product should be and whether we are able to also contain consumption as a result. It's really interesting to see and to delve, you know, with experts to see how beyond the curtain and, and the world is really how to put in practice and the different also perspective. Of course, a Western perspective is more is easier. But on the other side, if you, if you talk about even my reality in Africa or your reality, you know, also Pakistan and other area, of course, uh, the, the need for consumption is there because, as you see, also Africa or other areas, just 4% of emissions and production. It's really, we can see the booming and the consumption because it's needed and is a right also for, for some of the for the people. You are also part, we want also to, to discuss a bit of your work at the university. You are giving and forming the training, the, the change makers of the future, the leader of the future. You are at the UN University, you are in Delaware. So... For people, for professionals, for researchers, for even for students, and also our listeners that they want to contribute to the sustainability, 
what is your form of the world what your piece of advice of guidance that you can give them yes so i think that what's important for our young people is that they need to have a much more pragmatic approach you know my students who are very passionate about climate change and the environment i'm finding that they're showing a lot of anger and they're showing a lot of outrage which is understandable but it has led them to also a kind of intransigence they don't want to understand the the practical reality of how difficult it is to achieve certain objectives if you want to have a democratic pluralistic system of governance because there will be multiple perspectives and so first they have to engage in that political process if they want a democratic decision outcome especially in places like the US and Australia where i have taught and then in other countries where they do not have that opportunity they also need to then consider what would be the ways in which you can compromise on certain areas you know what ends up happening is if if you get too entrenched in either camp then you are not really able to find a solution and that is what has happened with climate change unfortunately consider the nuclear energy problem you know a lot of the activism against nuclear energy was not very science based and it was much more a positional entrenchment of like no way no how do we want nuclear power and that has actually delayed the green transition and now countries are realizing that so i would urge young people not to be get caught up in sort of linear activism they need to be systems oriented they need to think about the trade offs and a lot of campus activism is very linear it's about one issue and they don't have lateral thinking and consider the full systems issues because it's easy to mobilize around one issue you know you can be against deep sea mining you can be against nuclear power you can be against gmos and that's what a lot of our young people get caught up in because it's a it's very self righteous it gives you but they don't want to think as a system and deal with the trade offs and complexities and i i just hope that we can move more towards that and one of my other books earthly order the a, a book i wrote last year with oxford university press that was aimed at the systems thinking how to get people to think around complex realities of environmental decision making and in that case i i mean my goal was really i say we have a lot of environmental awareness but we don't have environmental literacy because people do not understand the foundational learning needed to understand complex systems complex systems are emergent unpredictable and we need to have a very different approach than the kind of linear solutions people are coming up with that book i i'm actually donating all the royalties for environmental education programs because i do feel this is a huge problem mm. among our younger generation and it should be that anyone going into university should have some foundational environmental literacy requirement we have diversity requirement we have english language requirement we have all these in universities why can't we have environmental literacy requirement requiring students to have that's the most foundational knowledge we need and you have people who do business majors or you know who have no knowledge or learning in 
that because it's not required in the education system. And instead, it's, a, it's a such a crucial point, especially for our generation and for our work. It's really something important. And I think we, we will ask you also to put the links for the books and the discussion, because this is also part of this podcast, giving voice to the different perspective, going out of the just... Uh, shouting but really giving voice to change maker and, and to appreciate the complexity and sometimes the paradoxal nature of some of these uh, problems that is exactly how we can work and how we can go deeper into the understanding and really try to solve to get a solution because it's important as you say awareness is important but it's also now education and how to solve it in a pragmatical way that is a win-win situation also for the people that are not also the western world but also the whole, the whole of the planet in a democratic way. And that's why, you know, journalism, the work you're doing is so important because you need to have the time to understand. And what the media tends to do is they want a very abbreviated content delivery and complex problems. You cannot sim- oversimplify them. That's one of the problems. Even when I'm writing a book, you know, the publisher or the agent will say, oh, you have to simplify it. It has to be understood by the layperson. And yes, you do want to make sure the language is understandable, but you can't dumb it down to a point where it loses its nuance. And so that's also very important. Having these kinds of more in-depth discussions are very important. You know, Alexander Pope famously said, a little learning is a dangerous thing in his essay on criticism. And I I think our young people don't understand that because they want everything just instantaneously. And we're not getting the depth of understanding. And that shallow understanding is actually more dangerous sometimes because they think they know and they don't really know. (laughs) And really people like you in high level panel, they are there really to see how the broader picture, the system thinking, and also how also coming from the so-called developing world, you can give also the perspective of the people, which of course are leftovers and they've been left over for many centuries. So now they also have to need a voice and they need to also have be there to, to achieve a development that was taken for granted for many other countries. So it's really important to see the complex picture. So Professor Ali, and I'm really happy and was really grateful for your conversation. It's such an insightful one. And I hope also the audience will enjoy and will have comments and discussion engaging because this is our part we are here and this is part of our journey toward the sustainability. Thank you so much, Ali. Are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey.